Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono, and today Tiny Voice is talking about metacognition, and I am joined by none other, none other than Anwara Magal, who has written the most fabulous book about metacognition. So welcome, Anwara. Thank you. Hello, Toria. Thank you for having me on board. I'm just so excited that you're here because, you know, on Twitter, anyone that wants to know about metacognition is always pointed in your direction. So who better to answer all my metacognition questions than you? So glad to be here and honoured to be here, actually. (laughs) I'm so excited to be being interviewed by yourself, Toria. So it's a real honour to be here. Thank you. That's so lovely. I love the fact that this podcast allows me to chat to people that I meet I meet and see on Twitter and actually have on little pedestals, you being one of them. Because I just think, you know, you are a font of knowledge. But for anyone that hasn't come across you, Anwara, who is Anwara Magal? So Anwara Magal um, is a... Um, a teacher. I've been a teacher for 16 years now, a uh, primary school teacher. Uh, I've been in senior leadership for about four years um, and I'm currently working on some exciting projects around the book um, and I've been oh, um, just developing my knowledge on metacognition and getting the message out there that it is something that we should all be developing uh, because given the current climate of rapid change, I really believe that knowing ourselves as learners is really, really important at this time. It really is. So... When did you become interested in metacognition? I became interested in metacognition way before I became a teacher. So um, I remember having my own children quite a number of years ago now um, and just watching how they learned to walk, how they learned to talk. Um, And I became really interested in the whole learning process from birth. And I would just watch them. And it would really amaze me how, you know, if my toddler fell over, they would just pick themselves back up and they would just carry on trying again and again and again. And they wouldn't give up. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And when I reflected on my own learning journey, whether it's academic or not, I thought, well, why is it that, you know, as an adult, I give up? Why can I not carry on like toddlers carry on? What is stopping me? What is preventing me from moving forward with my own learning? And that's how I became really fascinated in it. And, you know, if there was ever um, an event going on at UCL, I would take my children along to find out Mm -hmm. more. Um, And then many years later, I became a teacher. And then my fascination for it grew even more. So for those listeners that have tuned in and have heard you speak and are still thinking, I I still don't know what metacognition is because the word is bandied around so much. But actually, there are educators out there. I'm not saying any, 
listeners, I'm talking directly to you. I'm not saying that you don't understand the word metacognition, but for anyone out there, Anwara, who isn't too sure what it is, what is metacognition? So um, what I like to do, I like to broaden out the definition because yeah. often we hear that metacognition is um, about thinking about thinking. Mm. But that definition in itself, I don't think is enough because there's a lot more to it. And at the heart of it, I would say, is reflection. So Mm -hmm. metacognition is a set of behaviours that help you to um, monitor, manage and control your thinking, I would say, in a nutshell. But when you... It's a bit like an onion. It's got layers. So when you unpick the layers, um, at the heart of it is the reflection process. And also it incorporates improving memory. So Mm -hmm. when we use our reflection techniques, we can also help develop our memory. Wow. That's quite something, isn't it? It is. It's really powerful. And when I've seen it, uh, I mean, obviously, I've been practicing it for a number of years. When you see it in practice and how, particularly for the disadvantaged students, Mm -hmm. it can really help them accelerate their own knowledge about themselves as learners. And then you see them almost magically make that progress. and. It is really, really powerful when you see it in action. That's quite something, actually. And I'm just, I'm just considering. So I'm reflecting on what you're saying now, I'm, I'm, because that it seems simple to monitor, manage, and control our behaviours, and yet, actually, there's so much to that. So is that why you decided to put a book together, sort of the guide to metacognition for us? Yes, so there are a number of reasons. So when um, the word metacognition first kind of like came into the forefront of Mm. teaching, um, I started looking at the research and there was so much research out there. It was a minefield. um, And I thought, where do I start with this research? So thankfully, the EEF, produced their guidance to metacognition and self-regulated learning. So um, I started reading their list of research articles to begin Mm -hmm. with um, and put the book together because being a teacher myself, I understand that teachers are extremely busy people. Um, You know, sometimes they they just haven't got time to read the research, to analyse it, to break it down. So that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Um, And the other reason was uh, I wanted to also illustrate that we all have varying degrees of metacognitive knowledge. So in the book, what I've tried to do is write it in a way where teachers can recognise where they are with their own metacognitive thinking um, and then build up from there really so also I have the um, case studies I have the summaries for those teachers who don't have the time to read the research they can just quickly flick to those parts and get an idea of the chapters 
I love the way you've laid it out, I have to say, because for the listeners, I'm actually holding the book in my hand and it's great because it's got little boxes around things saying summary, think, teacher metacognition. It's great. It works. (laughs) My brain works around it nicely because I'm like, oh, yes. But what I really love, the teacher metacognition bit, because it actually does ask questions Mm -hmm. that stop and make me think. Now, as you know, and as the listeners know, I've been teaching for many, many years. But uh, what I found was when I got to those teacher metacognition questions, it really helped me to deeply reflect about what I was doing and where I was in the whole journey of it, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And big shout out to my publishers, um, and my editor, who thought about the, putting the boxes around the sections, <laughs> Diane Alves, thanks, brilliant, and Sage. Thanks to them. Yeah, no, well, that helps my brain. I'm good with boxes. I need I need boxes around things that make it very, very clear for me. And also, I like I also really like the different fonts and the different colours of fonts, because yes. that also helps my brain. But it's, it is very... It's very simply put together in a sense, but each chapter sort of mirrors the chapter before. And actually, again, you know, coming to metacognition, it's like that revisiting in a sense, yes. but with the style. You know, so actually I know what I'm getting and I feel comfortable because mm-hmm. I'm getting it again and again. So I really love that. Thank you for that. So, Oh, you're so welcome. You're, you, I, I'll, I'll just be sort of, you know, stroking your ego the entire time on this podcast, really, basically. But so, for those teachers that um, haven't as yet picked your book up and are only just getting to know this word metacognition, what does that look like in your classroom, Nora? So, in my classroom, it would look like in practical terms Mm -hmm. um when I'm teaching I usually have a set of questions for whatever subjects I'm teaching along the side um Mm -hmm. to develop that metacognitive thought so if I can give you an example for Mm -hmm. example handwriting very short lesson uh on handwriting so if I'm teaching that I have I would be modeling it so I'd have it on my visualizer I'd be talking through the process as I'm modeling the handwriting um, how tall my letters should be which lines they should be reaching um, which letters link and how they link Um, but before I let the children um, get on with their independent work we would practice and at the same time alongside it I would have a set of questions Um, and these questions have changed over time so initially I used to have statements and I found that they weren't working as well so for example if it said I can join um, the letter A to the letter C for example what Mm -hmm. I found was that was not developing the metacognitive thinking skills that the children needed so I've changed them now too have I linked my letter A to my letter C correctly? And what I found by changing it from a statement to a question, that made them become even more reflective about what they were doing. And 
you know, a lot of my disadvantaged pupils really, really benefited by having that set of questions next to them. And I do it for every lesson. Um, but I would say modelling is the key um, to developing that reflective thought and having the list of questions. And that also gives the pupils who are unable to work independently a little bit of scaffolding that they need. Yeah. And they think, oh, I can do this on my own. And that motivates them further. Yeah, I love that. And that, that does make total sense. It really does. I think the modelling, but the talking through the modelling. And then actually, I really get what you're saying about the question as opposed to the statement, really getting them to consider whether yes. or not they've done it. And developing that I can do this. So that's very much linked to the growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you talk about again and again and again in your book. So um, for the benefit of the listeners, can you talk about growth mindset and the link to metacognition? So when I first started writing the book and um, even like I've been, you know, a teacher for a number of years like yourself, whenever mm -hmm. I looked up the definitions for the growth mindset and the fixed mindset, it always came up with, in a if you have a growth mindset, you'd be resilient, you'd try again, etc., etc. Whereas fixed mindset would always say, oh, you give up easily, you don't persevere with tasks, etc., etc. And I have written in the book about speaking to SF Saeed, the author. Um, Yes. So I spoke to him. Well, we had this conversation because he came to um, uh, one of my schools to deliver a World Book Day session. And yeah. he said that he'd been to 92 publishers to have his first book published. And I said to him, oh, you must be a really resilient person. And he said, no, I'm not. I said, pardon? He said, no, I was resilient with the book because it was something that I had to get out there. I wasn't resilient with football, for example. I gave up and that really got me thinking. And I thought, well, what is the growth mindset then? It doesn't mean, I mean, I'm a normally positive person and I will try anything. I'll throw myself at challenges. But that doesn't mean that I have the growth mindset all the time for everything. You ask me about how to fix a car. I'll give up straight away. I'll be like, I haven't got a clue. Um, so um, that really got me thinking. And after mm. that, I put a tweet out asking people if they'd found any contradictory evidence that the growth mindset doesn't work. And somebody sent me an article. I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So for me, um, we all have the growth mindset and the fixed mindset but it depends what we pay attention to or what we are passionate about so we will have a growth mindset for the things that we are passionate about but not for other things yeah and passion is something actually that you talk about as well in your a book quite a bit so can that passion um, be developed within the classroom for the children I think it can, absolutely. Um, 
you know, it's like when we talk about, for example, one of my passions is reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were all aware about the research around reading and how to develop that reading for pleasure, which I would say is a passion. Um, yeah. You know, as well as the technical aspects of reading, sometimes when you're teaching the technicalities, that can become boring, but you can balance it out by also teaching the passion alongside it so that they both develop together. So I would definitely say it is something that can be developed. And so how do growth mindset and metacognition interlink? How does having a growth mindset that's positive about something help to be more metacognitive? So yes, it probably works both ways. Um, So um, what I would say is um, about the growth mindset, how does that impact on metacognition and vice versa? Mm. When, so um, in the EF document, they talk about scaffolding children's learning and making Mm -hmm. them become independent because there's that quote that we've all heard success precedes motivation and often I've thought about what are they talking about what does the word success mean um Mm. and it's the I would say it's the success of learning so whenever I've had a class I can tell straight away the children who know that they are successful learners and the ones that don't and I'm sure all teachers are aware of those children so by making them become independent with as less teacher input as possible can enable children to see that oh I can learn and I can learn on my own yes we give them scaffolds that's fine, mm-hmm. but they're doing it independently. They're using the scaffolds and that in turn develops a growth mindset and they see themselves as being successful learners. And then they think, oh, I can do this. Okay. When the learning becomes challenging, I'm going to push myself that little bit harder. So we give them the scaffolds. We give them um, the thinking prompts that they need for the lesson. And it's like a cycle. So yes, I can do this. I'll be motivated, I'll be challenged to do even better next time. And so the cycle goes on. And in between all of that, you ask them to reflect on their success. And then they become even more motivated. It's interesting, as you were talking there, I was thinking about those little ones that potentially used to be on the circle table. So I don't know about classes you've taught but we always you know years ago we would have circle triangle square um pentagon and hexagon tables hexagon were you know quite confident beings because they were hexagons everyone yes. be a hexagon and then you had circles mm-hmm. and circles fundamentally knew or at least they had learnt they didn't know they had learnt that they couldn't do anything unless an adult came and sat with them and they had that learnt dependence And I always thought that was, it always made me very, very sad that actually they, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be paying attention in the input because actually they knew that an adult would would go over and then they would be told what to do. Mm -hmm. And what I would see, what you're talking about is passion, motivation and so on. The children in hexagons had that 
in oodles. But actually, yes. the circle table didn't because they had that learnt dependence. Thankfully, most classrooms, if not all, all classrooms, have broken up those sort of tables and mm-hmm. we don't have that going on nowadays. But there are still those children that have that learnt dependence. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I see it in every school that I visit. Mm. I see it all the time. Um, And, you know, being in a primary school, I'm not sure whether we can get rid of that completely, Mm. but we can certainly work towards it. So when I'm teaching, I tend to refer to the children as learners. Um. And so I've changed the way I speak and the vocabulary that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what my, one of my favourite heroines is Rita Pearson. And when she talks in her TED talk about the reasons why, well, the explanations that she gave to her lowest group was, oh, me and you were put together, you know, to have fun. <laughs> I love that bit. Um, yeah. And I often... That comes to mind when I'm teaching. So she also says that sometimes it is so hard to find the positive in some children. And it's always looking for the positive. How can I praise them on their learning? What am I seeing in their learning? So it'll be like, oh, you're a fabulous learner. You've used this, this, this in your work today. Well done for following the success criteria. Whatever the tiniest bit of praise that you can give them will then elevate them and elevate their learning. Yeah. And and it does, without a doubt. You know, you I, I see day in, day out, those children that when you give them that praise, they sit up that little bit taller. They're That's tests, it. But, you know, it, yes. It's just, it's so lovely to see because, and it's it when is. they come over, you know, when they come over, I have one little one come up to me today and he said, I think I'm getting better at maths. I'm doing quite well now. And I was just like, oh, no, you really are. But it was so lovely that he could recognise it and didn't need an adult to be saying it to him. He was recognising his success. And I think that is such a key to unlocking that metacognition that you're talking about. Absolutely. It's that I give them what I call a success strip at the end mm. of some lessons, not for every single lesson, but sometimes. And um, I just get them to answer three questions. So were you successful today and why? Uh, what helped you? What would you do next time? And every single child can write something saying that they've been successful. Yeah. And so then that enables them to see themselves as learners because they've all been successful in one way or another yeah and it's I think it's so it's such a positive thing to do it really is now I want to move on to some misconceptions and you've already picked up one of those misconception around metacognition is thinking about thinking but I think out there in the world of education there are many misconceptions about all sorts of things but I I I just want to bring up some of the ones that you've popped in the book. So, all strategies to do with cognition are metacognition. 
I thought that one was fascinating. So all strategies, listeners, to do with cognition are metacognition. So what is, how, how does that differentiate? So um, without, so the clue is in the word metacognition, the cognition part. Mm. So without the cognition, you can't have the meta, so you can't have the thinking without the subject knowledge or the skills or whatever it is that you're teaching. And I remember many years ago when I um, first started looking into metacognition, um, there was something called learning to learn, which you would do at the end of a lesson as opposed to during a lesson. Um but in order to develop those deep metacognitive thoughts, mm. um, the lesson has to be challenging enough. If it's not challenging enough, you as a learner will find it very difficult to work out, well, what am I struggling with? What do I find easy? What am I struggling with? What do I know already? Um, have I encountered this before? Which is all the metacognitive thinking that is required to then um, complete, you know, the task or whatever you have to hand. Um, and as adults, we have developed a certain amount of metacognition. So, for example, if you're planning a holiday, you are already using metacognitive thinking uh, in that process because you know exactly where you have to look. So one of your criteria might be, I actually, I'll, give for you a real life example we went nice. to turkey yeah we went to turkey um during the easter holidays so back in january we started looking at tickets because we wanted to find mm -hmm. the cheapest way of getting there we started looking for hotels and i knew that i had to because i know myself as a learner I knew that I had to get those tickets booked by March because otherwise, come April, I'm going to start getting a little bit stressed out. Um, <laughs> and also I knew that we had to get to the airport at least four hours in advance because, again, I know myself, I don't like rushing. I like to take my time. So I already know these things about me. So hence why I had to book the transport back in March. I had to have it confirmed. I had to have my checklist ticked off. Otherwise, I would get so stressed out. So we, sometimes we do it like without like consciously thinking about it because we have been learning so, for so many years, whereas children haven't had that experience yet. Mm. So let's move on to another one, which is metacognition isn't just for older pupils. It's not just for those sort of upper key stage two children that actually we can be looking at metacognition with younger children. Absolutely. So um, I have come across some articles, blogs that I've read that say that metacognition can only be developed I think like in the teenage years or after mm -hmm. the age of 11 um, but I have a case study in the book where I've seen it in action um, in a child who was four years old at the time and I watched this child 
get on a two-wheelie bicycle, um, ride it in the garden, fall off of it, take the bicycle back to the starting point where he had balanced it on the garden table. He got himself back on it and went again, fell off, and he did this repeatedly and repeatedly until he had actually mastered it. And I think this went on for about a good 45 minutes. And I just stood there watching in fascination, thinking, what is that child thinking every time he falls off of the bicycle and gets back on, takes the bicycle back to the starting point and yeah. tries again and again and again? And what was really interesting, I met the child a few weeks later in the park with his mom. And um, I said to him, I said, how, you know, this is amazing. You can ride a bicycle now. How did you learn to ride a bicycle? And you would not believe what he said to me. This bit I didn't put in the book. He said, I practiced over and over again. And I thought, wow, this is coming from a four-year-old child that he, he wanted to ride a bicycle. He wanted to become successful at it. He knew at that age that he needed to practice. And somehow he overcame all his barriers to do that and become successful. I was in awe. That's amazing. I know. I couldn't believe it. I wonder, so I wonder what it was. I wonder if he'd seen someone else riding a bicycle. I wonder, I wonder what the motivation was. Yes. That's what I do. motivation there. Absolutely. I mean, he, he does have older siblings, so mm. maybe he's seen them ride a bicycle and he wanted to be like them or join them. Yeah, because actually, it's the way you describe it, it's very driven, it's very motivated. He obviously wanted to get there for a reason. Yes. And I think, you know, if we equate that to our young children in schools, actually giving them, you know, how wonderful if a child, you know, sat there, you know, doing handwriting, for example, going back to our season eight, and sat there for ages just because they wanted to write beautifully and they wanted to keep practicing until they got there mm-hmm. you know I personally I'm, I'm I love handwriting I'm really passionate about handwriting mm-hmm. I, I think it's you know once children get that that's the fluency just enables their brains to just open up to other things mm-hmm. and they can focus elsewhere but I've seen so many children do similar as the boy on the bike but with things like handwriting because actually they can they can see that success. Absolutely. So, yeah, there's, goodness, I could talk to you for hours about this. I really could, Anwar. I could talk about it for hours. It's fascinating. You're just, well, as I said before, you're a font of knowledge. But let's just think for a moment for those student teachers, those new teachers there, if they could do a couple of things in their classroom right now to develop some metacognition, to actually begin to bring something in, what would you say would be the most helpful things to start doing? I would say having um, a success criteria. So I know that there's a lot of debate about it, but actually Mm -hmm. 
letting pupils know what you expect to see in their work. So, you know, like writing is quite easy. We would give them a model text. Um, we can break down what they need to include in the text quite easy. Um, but it's being very clear and specific about yeah. what you expect to see. Um, and then that makes marking easier as well, I would say. Because if they've included two or three things that you wanted to see by the end of the lesson, it'll be a big tick. Oh, yeah, I can tick off this, this and this um, straight away. So that'll be really helpful. And then just having, it doesn't have to be, you know, 10, 15 questions, just two or three, three questions alongside what the task is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be, have I done this? Have I done that? have I included this um also modeling I know can be a huge barrier but I would say um that the more you do it the better you become at it and I remember when I was an NQT and I had to model I would avoid it I would cringe every time I would just say oh I can't model my thinking process but once you start, just start small. Yeah. Does that have like just two sentences? Um, start very small. Oh, you know, what am I writing? Uh, where am I getting my vocabulary from? What do I need to include in this sentence? Can I improve it? Um, just those kinds of questions, really. Mm. Now, One of the things that lots of people say alongside metacognition is that we need to use knowledge organisers for Yes. Would you be in agreement with that? Yes, I would be in agreement with that um, to a certain extent. So Mm -hmm. I would say the knowledge organiser, we do need to think carefully about it um, because not every child will need it. So it can be used as a scaffold, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those children who you've taught the lesson, um, they've practiced whatever they need to practice in order to complete the task. But you will have those pupils who have very poor working memory. And right. by the time they go to start their independent activity, they may have forgotten key facts or information that they need to include. So um, it can be used as a scaffold for those pupils. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting that you say that, because I think, again, knowledge organisers have come out and I've seen them talked about so much, but it's trying to figure out where they sit in this metacognitive classroom you know exactly where is the best place for them because as you touch on in your book teachers are very very quick to grab things quickly we like a process we really do do. um but actually when we don't always do things that works for the best that fits best with our children as such we grab hold of something because we think oh that work that works really really well we'll just use it but actually what you're saying is we need to be very considered around the knowledge organizers 
Absolutely. So some knowledge organisers, you know, the higher up you go in the school, they become more detailed, don't they? But when Mm. you're considering the working memory of those children who may not remember everything that you've taught them, I would say um, consider how much of the knowledge organiser they need as a scaffold. So for that particular lesson, they might not need the whole sheet. They might only need a section of it for that particular Mm. lesson that you're teaching. So therefore, they don't become cognitively overloaded. And especially if they're not proficient readers, looking for where the information is in a detailed knowledge organiser will throw them completely. Yes. So I would say just honing in on the section that is required and being mindful of the pupils who may need that as a scaffold. That makes complete sense. Thank you. Now, listeners, in case you want to get Anwara's book, you can get it from Amazon because that's where I got it. Um, and it's, it's a Corwin Sage Publishing Company, and it you could I will put the link in the show notes for you. It's absolutely fabulous, and honestly, there is so much to it. I promise. So really, really well worth getting. Um, yes. So Anwara, before I finish, I always ask the same final question, which is this: If you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Uh, For me, it has to be one of the people that I've mentioned in my book, and I've mentioned her before, has to be Rita Pearson. Um, I guessed that. I knew you were going to say her. (laughs) What a formidable, inspiring person she was. And I try and emulate her teachings in my own teaching. And if I could have been taught by anyone, it would have to be her. I love that. I really do. So, Anwara, if people want to connect with you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? You know, so my Twitter handle is um, at Anwara, so A N O A R A underscore A. But you can also connect with me on my other Twitter account um, where myself and Sammy, we. conduct chats on metacognition every month and that's called i metacognition also i have a website www.inspiremetacognition.com so if you wanted to contact me you could fill in the contact form on my website perfect and in case you don't have a pen listeners it will all be in the show notes do not worry Anwara you have been a delight to chat with about metacognition thank you so much I have pages and pages of notes and things that I'm going to do now um so yeah thank you so much and have a great day thank you so much for having me it's been a real honor